0: Matchups Podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are here to close out our four verse 13 seed matchups with you guys with our Movies from Books Bracket Challenge. So today we have for you Crazy Rich Asians, which is our fourth seed, versus Ender's Game, which is our 13th seed. So let's get into these movies a little bit, talk a little bit about their statistics. Crazy Rich Asians coming in at a 91% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 2013 novel by Kevin Kwan was made into a film in 2018 directed by John M. Chu. A lot of praise for this movie, just for the diversity, for the all Asian cast was nominated for two Golden Globes. One for Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, and one for Best Performance by an Actress for Constance Wu, which we have some problems with, and I think we'll get into. This is later. real quick
1: to, to be talking about problems. But
0: yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, just a little sneak preview when we get into strengths and weaknesses, and then we float over to Ender's Game, which comes in at a 62 percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, based on the 1985 novel by Orson Scott Card. Was made into film in 2013, was a huge box office bomb, came in with a gross of 125 mil on about a $115 million budget. So huge bomb. Made money. Made money, but they also predicted it would do much, much better, but- One of the biggest factors in that, it seems, was there was actually a boycott of this film due to the author of the book speaking out on gay marriage and homosexuality being against both of those. Oh, he
1: was so close.
0: Yeah. So he had this big statement that he made. And it's really gross and awful. Uh, but basically that I hope people see the wrongdoings and their beliefs related to this. So yeah. a lot of people were just like, boo, fuck this guy. And, and that was the author, the author of the book. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of controversy around that and a lot of people boycotting the film because of that. So I think there's other reasons why it was a big bomb. But they also put a lot into the marketing. It seems like they partnered with Audi to have commercials with the Audis and this movie and promote it. Car. Yep. Yeah, okay. yeah. All that that stuff So it seems like they put a lot of money into the marketing as well as just the overall budget for the film. So it just did not do what it wanted to do it was supposed to be slated for some sequels was still in talks in 2014 about that, and then seemingly went nowhere after that. So that is the statistics behind both of these movies, some of the production things behind them. And we will go in and talk themes and talk our strengths and weaknesses and talk it out until we get a winner out of this matchup and close out our four verse 13 seeds. So let's get right into themes. It's kind of hard to say a theme for these movies because we have a romantic comedy versus a science fiction young adult book. So. We didn't really come up with a plot theme, so to say, which is what we usually do. We just came up with a common theme across both of these movies, and that is that both of them are visually appealing in two very different ways. And so I guess we can talk about Crazy Rich Asians in that sense because it's a less traditional form of visually appealing. You think visuals, and we have Ender's Game, which is the visual effects appealing. And then we have Crazy Rich Asians, which is just the visual, Visual appeal of it. So I think a lot of things go into that. First off, just being the amount of colors that are used in this movie. It's a very colorful movie. There's no really common theme in people's clothing or color schemes or anything. It's all just very bright all the time. But I think that also is because every scene is pretty heavily casted. There's a lot of extras in this movie, there's a lot of cast members very extravagant, big setups. You don't see a lot of small spaces in this movie. Well,
1: that's the point, right, is that these are insanely wealthy people. So everything in this movie has to be big. And I'm shocked that they stayed with the budget that they did in this movie because a lot of this seems to be so big visually.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the saves that they made in terms of the budget is, goes into my next reason why it's so visually appealing is the costumes. So when it was heard that this was coming out and when this would be adapted into a film, a ton of really, really famous designers like Dolce & Gabbana, Balenciaga, all of these designers were like, sign me up. I want you guys to wear my outfits in this movie. So most of the clothes, which are beautiful and extravagant in this movie, I mean, the outfits are incredible. were given by the designers because they wanted them to wear them in this movie so i think they saved some money on the costume design aspect of things because they were gifted all of these designers and the movie called for that because all of these people were openly wearing these designer outfits and designer shoes and all these extravagant looks but the costumes were just incredible it really reminds me of sex in the city too in that way Hilarious. And I mentioned the second one because I think that the first one has a little bit of give in the integrity of the plot, and the second one just falls right down the shitter. But The costumes are stunning. It's absolutely beautiful to watch. And the things they wear, I mean, is just jaw-dropping. And Sex and the City's been known for years for just the outfits that they've worn and the iconic outfits that they've worn throughout the entire series. But the second movie specifically was a bad plot and was badly acted and poorly executed, but visually very pretty to look at because there were a lot of these very expensive outfits they were wearing. And I would say that this movie is pretty similar in that I got more out of seeing what people were wearing and some of the dresses and the costumes and the two pieces and some of like the satin two piece looks that they wore, especially Aquafina's character had a lot of funky styling to her. And that was more fun and appealing for me than the actual plot of this film.
1: That's so Miranda of you to say.
0: <laughs> I I am a working lady. That's right.
1: I don't know what the characters are, or what they describe as the different people, but I know Miranda's the name of one of them.
0: Yeah, that's okay. You can say that about me. I I will accept that. But yeah, I think that is what I thought of when I saw this movie is that it's very pretty to look at. It's a very stunning movie to look at. You can never stop looking at something and everyone is always dressed in a different color. When two characters are standing next to each other, you don't really see them matching a lot of the time. Like everyone is very uniquely styled but in a way that's very extravagant and very beautiful so that's the visual appealing points that I give to this movie
1: one of the other visual appealing points that I actually wrote down because I thought it was very important is the final wedding scene the whole story is about these two people Rachel and Nick are going to go to Nick's best friend's wedding and Rachel is going to go with and meet his family and his friends and his whole other world that he has sheltered her from. And the visuals of this wedding are really great until they take Nick and Rachel and shove them right in the middle and they're mouthing words to each other. And while that's happening, I'm like, I don't care. The visuals of this wedding were actually pretty incredible and I'd like to go look at that because these people kind of suck and we'll get into that and how much we really didn't like some of the performances of this movie.
0: Yeah, that wedding scene was really great. And it really reminded me of Sex in the City, the second one, when Stanford and Anthony are getting married and they have Eliza Minnelli at the wedding and there's swans and it's all white and it's very overblown and very dramatic. And they do a good job at pointing fun of that a little bit in the movie. And this is very similar because you have these almost twinkle lights on sticks that are lining the aisle and everything is just huge and extravagant. And then they start floating like a little creek down the aisle and the bride comes out and her dress is cut off at her knees and she's wearing this dress and walking down this water path. And it's all very, very overdone and extravagant, but in a way that works for this movie. And A huge part of that too is, again, the costumes and all of the things that the guests are wearing at the wedding, but also that dress. I mean, it's fucking, I would never wear it. But the dress was specially designed to be waterproof, was specifically designed for this scene. It sounds like they put a lot of work into thinking about how extravagant can we make this or how stunning can we make this look and did a really, really great job at that. And then flipping over to Ender's Game, you have something very different in the visual appealing aspects, which, as I mentioned before, is the visual effects of it and the way it looks. And so this whole movie is set pretty much in space. So the whole premise of this movie is that there is... This is set years and years in the future and that children have gotten so good at video games and have gotten so good at technology that they're now recruiting children to help build an army to save the planet from alien invaders. That's the gist of it. So this boy named Ender gets picked to go into this recruiting army space ranger type of scenario. And so he leaves Earth and goes on a rocket ship up to this space station where they're training. So the rocket ship scene of him going off into space with all these other children is amazing and fantastic. And it looks very cool. It's a faraway shot of this rocket launch and it looks very realistic. It looks very visually appealing. And then the whole movie is set pretty much in this space station. And there's a few outside space scenes. But there's also this giant battle arena that has these big blocks in it. And you just it's a zero gravity room, basically, with these big glass windows that look out into space. And so a lot of the scenes are based in there with the kids practicing battles and floating around in the zero gravity room. And it's all very, very impressive. And it feels really expensive, too.
1: So the visuals do have that classic sci-fi look. And going back to that battle arena that you were talking about it is really cool just to see how they did all of these bodies flying around especially when they would do the the shots from far away where you would just see the kids come out of the gate and shoot wherever they want and it just looked so great and you got really invested into those stories of the battles
0: I think it looked realistic. And I'll get into this later in my little detail section, but it didn't feel like a goofy space movie. It felt like something that looked like what you would look like if you were indoor skydiving or doing some kind of zero gravity room. It looked very realistic. It didn't look goofy. The choreography was really great. And overall, I think the impressiveness was also with the layout and the visuals of the battle station itself and the space station, whatever we're calling it, and the different rooms, according to ranking and how the technology worked in there. And when he was promoted to the salamanders, he was told to just follow the light down the hallway. And there was this green light leading to where he needed to go. And it was so impressive thinking that all of these different rankings of groups of children and all of the administrative people and all of the battle arenas and all the training areas and everything like that was housed in this bubble of the space station you see on a couple shots of the exterior shots. And it was a very impressive layout that they built. And it felt like it was also a realistic layout that they built. Like I got from the exterior of that, what the interior looked like. And when they showed the interior, it all matched up and it felt very realistic and it felt very nicely put together and nicely designed.
1: I would agree. I liked looking at this movie.
0: So then let's go over into strengths and weaknesses and let's stay on Ender's Game and talk about the strengths first of this movie.
1: Okay. I'm going to talk maybe for a little bit because I'm going to start somewhere and then you'll pick it up as I go. So one of my favorite things that I tell everyone is how great Pixar is because Pixar does this thing where They are able to take these very heavy concepts and put it as something that a child could understand. And they do that with this movie where they talk about the morality of war and what that looks like. And while watching this, I was thinking about the U.S. military system because the U.S. military system is run by people that are much older and recruit people much younger. There's an age limit and also preach that the enemy is the enemy without necessarily an understanding. And you can get into the ideologies of why someone is the enemy, why they aren't the enemy. But I think this movie has a lot to say about the morality of war and waging war against someone, even if you don't understand them.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of very sophisticated subjects for this movie. And I think that plays into some of my strengths too, not exactly as well as you stated it or that specific instance, but this is overall a young adult book, but it's interesting you say that about the military because Reading in on some of the trivia, there's several branches of the U.S. military that require this as reading for some leadership positions because it teaches you a lot about military leadership and the good qualities of a leader in it. So there are those crossovers. And I I think naturally there's those crossovers because it's a movie about a child militia fighting aliens and warding them off so they don't take over the earth. So I think that it is in a way, this young adult book with some crossover themes of these stereotypical young adult themes, like you have a kid who's the chosen one and who is superior over all of his friends and the misfits of the group or of the school are the ones that end up being his friends and that he leads and he shows the way. So there's a lot of these young adult crossovers that you see in many of them, but this felt new. This felt like something I hadn't seen before And it's a science fiction genre, which, as I've talked about before, I absolutely hate. But this didn't really feel like a science fiction movie. This felt like a young adult coming of age space movie. I know that's not a genre, but it felt very new. And so it's incorporating those sophisticated themes and that morality background into a book that is geared towards many people, I think, and... I mean, fuck this author for what he said, but like some of the themes in this book of being very adult and you have people who are going to be leaders in the military reading it, but then you have children who are 13 and in the age group of these individuals who are the stars of this movie reading it. And that's a pretty powerful way to write a book where you have such a strong influence over two very specific populations.
1: Now, something that you said about this movie which is part of the setting that takes place is that children are recruited because of their abilities to play video games and be able to adapt more quickly. When I was watching this and we got towards the end, I was thinking, is that really why the children were selected or because children are taught to listen to their elders and respect what their elders say? So they're more easily malleable in order to get what these other older characters who are actually in charge want them to do.
0: And first, some background and context for people who don't know what Sean's talking about is, so the whole thing is that there are these children who are selected and then there's Colonel Groff, who's played by Harrison Ford and then Viola Davis's character, who's almost like the psychologist of the group. And those are seemingly the only two elders and then the one lieutenant who is in charge of just making sure everyone gets to their battle stations, basically runs the show.
1: Drill sergeant guy.
0: Yes. And so through this movie, we have Ender who is the main character and he shows a lot of promise and is that chosen one character and slowly gets promoted through the ranks of these children militia groups and then is asked to lead his own group, the Dragon Army or whatever it's called. And so they trick them, the colonel and some of these elder people by saying, hey, we're going to do a simulation of what it would look like for you to fight these alien invaders because they're coming any minute now. And so he leads this simulation and blows up their planet. And with the help of all of these misfit friends he made along the way. And then they turn on him and let him know, hey, this wasn't a simulation. You actually did this and you actually destroyed the planet. Good job. Like you got rid of these invaders. And then he has this existential crisis moment where he's a child and he's like, I didn't want to actually wipe out an entire population and I don't feel good about that. And you guys tricked me. And then the end of the movie is him going to one of the living aliens who almost looks like a giant fly. And there's this one larva that she's been keeping that is going to grow. And then he takes it and wants to bring it somewhere safe so he can try and regrow their population that he wiped out and make amends for it. So it is this whole thing of he's being tricked because he is a child and doesn't really know any better and, they're withholding this from him. They're not telling him anything about this. And there's this morality of children who don't want to hurt people naturally. When you're younger, children are less likely to be violent. They're less likely to have ill will towards people, want to severely hurt anyone. So they're taking advantage of a population that they know won't ask questions because they're not in the sophisticated mindset to do so yet, but also have these skills that adults don't have where they're evolving quicker to learn more about technology and learn more about video games and be quicker on the pull and the trigger of these things and think more critically on some of these war-related militarized actions. So it is that very interesting concept of like, this is the perfect population that these people would want to take because they're innocent yet knowledgeable.
1: Yeah, and another thing that made me think about it, and I don't know about your high school, but did they ever have an army recruiter come who yeah, came in the Hummer?
0: Oh, no, we didn't have the Hummer. We had okay. the guy with the pull up bar in front of the cafeteria. And he was like, how many pull ups can you do? Join the army. And here's a candy bar or something like that. And people would do it during lunch hour and try and show off.
1: But that's what it is, right? It's let me bring this thing that attracts kids in order yeah, to these, like
0: 15 year olds in high school.
1: Yeah. And that's what they're doing here, right? Bringing these kids in, trying to attract them to what is possible, what you can gain. And we had the pull-up bar one year, but another year, a guy came in a Hummer. And in the back of a Hummer, he had a big TV and Call of Duty.
0: Which is what the American military looks like, exactly.
1: So that's why this stuck in my head so much. Because I said, oh, the kids are playing video games and then they're going to go to war. That's exactly what happened in my high school with the guy with the Hummer.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, that's interesting. You bring that up and it is a little fucked up. And by no means are we anti-military or anything like
1: that. No, because they do a great service and they're very important. Yeah. But there's some ideologies of what the military should be that I believe can be questioned and discussed.
0: Sure. And there is a time and place for that. And it's not this podcast. But I think it is really interesting to think of those crossovers in this movie. And it's interesting that. Such a, I would argue, a liberal viewpoint. And
1: that's why this shocked me.
0: Yeah. And more of a sophisticated viewpoint on morality and children and taking advantage of innocent populations and more fragile populations comes from a guy who wrote a book and then talked bad about. but but homosexuals and gay marriage doesn't make any sense, but you know, I guess whatever. He's just an idiot, but wrote He, he wrote a book that made it okay. Movie. So, Saying that, let's go over into weaknesses. And this was actually kind of tough for me to come up with because it's weird. I didn't love this movie.
1: It was solid, though.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't watch it again. But also, I couldn't really find any weaknesses for it. My one that I came up with is that Ender seemed to grow in his rankings very quickly. And he started out just at the base training with all of the other kids who got chosen and then got promoted and then became his own leader of his own army. And it all happened, it seemed, very quickly in the movie. And he just seemed too capable with every promotion. It didn't seem like there was any learning curve at all that he had to go through being in any of these. There was one particular promotion where he went from just like his base group of kids to being in the salamanders. I think that's what they were called. And he got training from Petra, who's Haley Steinfeld's character, on the zero gravity room, on the battles, on shooting, all of these things, and was a little bit better in those situations. But it seemed like going from the salamanders to the dragon army and just becoming a leader and knowing exactly what to do the entire time. He's smart, and we knew that, and we knew that he was capable. But it didn't come with any normal childhood errors or any normal human errors. And it just felt like he was too capable. And I think this is. Do you know why? Why?
1: Because he's the chosen one. Uh,
0: yeah, sure. But even Harry Potter couldn't have done it without Hermione, you know? And I guess Patriot is the Hermione of the story. But I think this is a classic example of the book and the movie adaptation and how in the book, it being longer and more detailed, there was probably more of that buildup of here's what he did and here's what he learned and here's his inner dialogue. And you would get to see those leadership qualities bloom a little bit more, whereas in the movie, because we only have a certain amount of time to do it and because he has to move up in rankings, that they didn't get that inner development as much as they would have in the book
1: you're absolutely right on that my weakness goes into a character that i hated so much and that's bonzo bonzo's the worst
0: bonzo's the worst villain ever he's too villainy
1: yeah he almost turns it up too high
0: he tries to kill this kid
1: yeah and then the kid kills him or whatever But not really. He tries to kill Ender, but Ender gets him. But not really. But he kind of just slips and hits his head. But he kind of deserved it. I had a lot of mixed feelings when Bonzo got seriously injured.
0: So Bonzo is the lead commander of the Salamanders. And he has some little man syndrome. He's about like four feet tall, I swear to God. Um, And so Ender comes into the salamanders and immediately on entering their group, he's like, you'll hang back and you listen to me and you're not going to be here to learn. And you're going to go home like right off the bat with no context whatsoever. And then continues that whole Very, very bad guy with no actual good morals or shimmers of goodness in him throughout the entire movie. And it's just too much. He's too much of a hardcore villain. He needs to have a little bit of substance to him. Like he's really just the type of guy who's going to come and beat the shit out of any new recruit who's better than him. I get feeling threatened, but the amount of hostility that he shows towards people. And the amount of violence he shows towards others just seems really out of context and too much.
1: Especially because what's going on at this point in the movie when Bonzo ends up coming into the movie is more or less the part about learning to be a leader. So Bonzo's the complete opposite. He's like, you're new. You're not going to do anything. It's like, okay, well, that's not what leaders do. So I'm confused why you're here. Is he here because of just straight aggression towards people and he's just beating up everyone who's better than him until he gets to the top? Is that what it is? I'm very confused by Bonzo.
0: I think the premise behind it is he is supposed to be a character that feels like he is the best. And he feels threatened by anybody who may possibly be better than him. But again, they just take it too far. He's not the best and tries to throw quick jabs. Again, I know we're bringing in another young adult movie, but think of Draco Malfoy. He is the villain. But there is some soft spots to him and there's some insecurities there. Whereas Bonzo clearly has some insecurities, but is so overly aggressive and overly compensates for it in a very hostile and violent way that it really makes no sense for a child to be that way. He's like the ultimate bully, but the bully that will actually murder you.
1: Yeah. Bonzo is going to beat up Ender in the shower.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And then Bonzo hits his head and it's lights out. So yeah, so that was, that was a wild part of this movie. But I think it's time. Let's transition into Crazy Rich Asians and talk a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of this movie. And let's go ahead and talk about the strengths of this movie first.
1: I think the supporting characters are top-notch in this movie.
0: Your strength is my strength as well. I think specifically we have Aquafina who plays... I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but it's Peeklin. And we have Nico Santos who plays Oliver.
1: From one of my favorite shows, Superstore.
0: Yeah, which is still weird to me, but Sean loves Superstore. I might
1: be the only person that loves it and watches it religiously, but Superstore is great.
0: Yeah, so we have Aquafina and Nico Santos who... Feel like the only characters in this movie with souls. They feel like they have more dimensions and I think part of it is Aquafina improved most of her lines and she was just very herself in this movie. And Nico Santos was this very elaborate, flamboyant character with a lot of heart and a lot of charm and a lot of just soul. And he seemed like a good person. And so did Aquafina's character. And I think compared to everyone else who felt pretty shitty and one dimensional, they really, really shined in this movie for me. And I would watch more Aquafina, more Nico Santos in this movie, because I think they were really fun and really great and added a layer of lightness to this movie because it's a romantic comedy and you need those characters. But because of the acting and because of a lot of things I think we're going to talk about next in The Weaknesses, there wasn't a good mix between these Characters that are brought in for this comedic relief, for this lightness, and the main characters and their conflicts. So, having them in this movie, it felt very much like a nice breath of fresh air. And it felt like these are two people who actually have souls and minds as opposed to everybody else in the movie.
1: There's one other, I don't know if I would consider her a supporting character or a main character. But another one that I thought did a really great job and that was Nick's mom.
0: Yes, she was great. She was stone cold.
1: And that's exactly what she needed to be. And she was perfect at it. So I don't know if I would consider her a main or supporting character, but I guess I would consider her a supporting character because the main characters are the main love interest, Nick and Rachel.
0: Yeah. And just going over the structure of this movie real quick, because we didn't talk about it. It's your basic romantic comedy. So there's really nothing huge going on. But Rachel is a professor at NYU and meets Nick in New York. And Nick's best friend is getting married in Singapore. So he wants to bring Rachel over to Singapore to meet his family and his friends. And then she finds out he's basically just like loaded and Singapore elite and all these women are seeking after him and find him to just be amazing and his family very extravagant and amazing. And through the course of it, his mother and then some of the other members of his family, most of the members of his family, don't feel that Rachel is worthy of him, don't feel that she would carry the family name well. So there's a lot of inner conflicts there between the family and between Rachel and her trying to stand up to the family, but her being affected by what the family says to her. So that's the whole basis of this plot. So his mom does have a big hand in this movie and she needs to be just a stone cold, lifeless, soulless person. And she does it nails really great. It. She nails Absolutely it. Absolutely nails it. it. Yeah. She's really good in this movie. So I think it's interesting that our strengths are the same because I totally agree. I think some of the secondary characters knocked it out of the park. And then let's go into weaknesses and talk about the main characters who were the most boring People I think I've ever seen in a romantic comedy. So we have Rachel's character played by Constance Wu.
1: How did she get nominated for an award? I
0: have no idea. So when we first started watching this movie, this is a movie overall. Let me just say that we are very confused by the Rotten Tomatoes score because a lot of people really love this movie. And this is a movie that felt like a Lifetime movie. Or you pointed out it felt like a Hallmark Christmas channel, like one of the Hallmark Christmas movies, which are great, by the way, they are great. But you don't go into a Hallmark Christmas movie expecting it to be some revolutionary acting or something. You just want a cheesy love story that makes you feel good. And this felt like a Hallmark movie without the cheesy love story that made you feel good. It had all of the background of it, but not the context of it. So we have Constant Wu, who is just awful. And even in the first couple of scenes, just her body movements and her language where she'll like roll her head a few times and very dramatically fold her arms like you would see in a high school play of someone who is just starting out acting and thinks being overly dramatic is being a good actor. And that's what it felt like through this whole movie. She was so unlikable and so one note. I just didn't find her to be a compelling character. I didn't want to root for her because the whole premise of this movie is you're supposed to root for her because she's the girl from the non-traditional family who has brought herself up to be successful and to be independent. And she is supposed to fight these values that... We're just going to be rich and stay at home and show off our extravagance. And so you're supposed to root for her as a strong, independent woman. But the way she delivers these lines and the way she talks about, well, I'll show them. I'm going to get back at them. It's so fake feeling and it's so poorly acted that it made me just hate her character.
1: Agree, I wanted to see none of her after the first hour. And then there's Nick, who is dull.
0: Boring, so boring. For someone who is supposed to be so alluring, and I think here's the problem with it, is that he's supposed to be so alluring to all of these women who are in Singapore or all of these women who know who he is because he has money and because he's handsome. But he's alluring to Rachel for his personality, for getting to know him. And that's supposed to be why they're a good match for each other. But he is so fucking boring. Like he stands by his family's side pretty much. So in the end, we find out that his mother did a background check on Rachel and found out that basically her mother had sex with another man and got pregnant and then fled the country. So... Rachel's father is still alive. She just doesn't know him. So basically, she's like this bastard child from a fatherless single mother.
1: Which who cares? Who
0: cares? Yeah. Nobody gives a shit here. But that doesn't align with their values. So they do that background check and they're like, Nick, you didn't know about this. Like it's some huge deal to Nick, who is very much less, it seems, conventional in the values his family have put forth and trying to challenge those. And he just looks at her and is like, what? And then lets her run away. And it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't get it. So then... He goes and he proposes to her and she says no after she spends like four days crying in Aquafina's bed. She says no. And then she goes and meets up with his mom.
1: By the way, when she said no, I was so disappointed because that meant this movie still had about 20 to 30 (laughs) minutes left.
0: Yeah. So anyways, so she says no. And then she goes and meets with Nick's mom and they're playing Mahjong. And she talks about how I hope when you look at your grandchildren and when you look at Nick's rich wife one day and she's everything you want her to be, that you know it's because of me that you have that in your life. And so then she's boarding a plane with her mom to go back to New York and Nick comes on this plane and proposes to her again after seemingly nothing has been solved. And she's like, Oh my God. Yes.
1: Stolen right from the wedding singer.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Without the great song. And then, They go to this party with his family and all of his friends who publicly ridiculed her and laughed at her and also who are very fake and don't really give a shit about her. We just
1: watched all these people be mean to her for an hour and a half.
0: Yeah, they go to this party where everyone's like, oh, I'm so happy for you. And she's smiling at the mother. Which, by the way, is different from the book. In the book, he says, fuck my family, let's be together, and goes with her to New York. So it's very different in the movie and the book. And I don't know why they chose to do that, because it makes him seem also, still very boring and very much a shitty person. Like, if you truly love somebody and your family did that to someone you really, really loved, because they did some fucked up shit to her and were very Oh, you mean, mean by
1: putting a dead fish in her bed?
0: Yes, we're very mean to her. It wasn't that they just needed to warm up to her, didn't know her. They purposely were very malicious and got this background check behind her back and told her you'll never be good enough and all of these things. You'd think that you would stand up for somebody you loved and at least confront your family about it. And there was no confrontation scene with him and his family, his mother, anything like that. So it showed that he's just kind of a pushover when it comes to his family. And it showed that she's just a pushover when it comes to him. And it just feels like a loveless proposal. And that's one thing I really hated, too, is that Proposal scenes in romantic comedies are supposed to be this buildup of romance and fantasy and beautiful stuff where these two people really connect and you're rooting for them. Think of some of these classic rom-coms. Think of Sleepless in Seattle. Think of You've Got Mail. I know there's not proposal scenes in some of those, but like think of the lead up of these two characters meeting. You're rooting for them to get together. You want them to. And at the end of the movie, I was like, oh, can these two just never show up ever again? I was so... Over it.
1: Well, someone's not buying tickets to Crazy Rich Asians, too.
0: <laughs> I'm definitely not. I'm I'm definitely not. But yeah, I just felt like this movie had no soul whatsoever. It was visually appealing. It had a few good secondary characters, but this movie just felt very non-compelling and it felt like these characters didn't have a good bone in their body.
1: Do you have any other weaknesses? Because I have one.
0: I don't. I think me calling the entire movie awful and the actors awful and the plotline awful is enough for weaknesses for me.
1: So Nick had a sister, Astrid, right? It was his cousin. Cousin. Astrid. Sorry. And Astrid had a husband that cheated on her. And we come back to this plot point every once in a while. But it's so erratic and I don't care about it at all. And I don't know why it's shoehorned into it.
0: So it seems from the research I've done, I did not read this book. I did not read the rest of the books. It seems from the research I've done that her courting and her story is played out more through the books because she starts falling in love with a man who was briefly in this movie and they like had a nod at each other at the bar at the party or something like that. So it seems like they were just setting up her character and her plot line a little bit for the future installments.
1: Ah, so this is where Crazy Rich Asians 2 comes into play. I guess.
0: I don't know enough about it, nor do I care, nor do I ever want to watch this movie or any other installments ever again of it.
1: Wow. Any little details that you like?
0: My little detail is something I already talked about in Weaknesses, and sorry, I I ruined that. But yeah, I just put that proposal scenes are supposed to be emotional. They're supposed to be a buildup. They ruin the I'm rooting for them feel. And it made a big difference because in all these rom-coms, you're leading up to these proposal scenes. You're leading up to these marriages. You're leading up to these meetups. And that's the end game of it. And these two characters falling in love or being together forever or whatever it is. And with this one, it was just like, Poorly timed proposals, bad proposals really didn't make any sense. So that was my little detail and I've already talked about it.
1: My little detail is the vignettes of Nick's family tree when Rachel asks him about it and he's talking about his different family members. And we're actually getting visuals of the family members. And that's one of my favorite things in movies is if we introduce small characters, having a scene that goes along with it, it's very important to me and it makes me feel really good watching it. And the last movie that you and I collectively watched where it works the best is Kill Bill. When we get these introductions of these characters, it's kind of these backstories that are their own significant scenes. And in Crazy Rich Asians, they're not very long, but they're still effective and I like them.
0: That's a great little detail. And I think it does a really good job of having a lot of family members and having a lot of characters. But throughout the movie, you do know who these people are. You're not like, who is that again? Or who is that? You really get it because they give you that little tiny snippet of this is what they do. This is who they are. This is who they're dating. This is how they fit in the family dynamic. Who likes them? Who doesn't? You get it. You you get it really quickly. And I think it says something too that These are set up and these perceptions of these people are never changed in the family dynamic because the family is so strict and so stringent. So that is a great little detail. Going into Ender's Game, my little detail for Ender's Game, I said I would talk about when it comes to the Zero Gravity Room. So something I found out during my research is that the actors actually trained with Cirque du Soleil to yeah to figure out what their formations look like because there's a particular scene where Ender's army the dragon army has to go and take on the other armies and they have these little guns that they shoot that basically petrify using Harry Potter stuff again or freeze them so it doesn't actually kill them or hurt them but it's like a practice thing so they have to figure out these formations where they're basically like a turtle shell and they're all connected and they're floating through the zero gravity room. And it's really cool. And even just them floating around the room, i mentioned this before, but it's done so in a way where when they first do it, they're like, I don't know how to control my body. And then slowly they push off these big giant rocks in the middle of the room and are doing really well at it and seem like they're doing it in a way that's believable, but also is very fluid. And so I loved that they put in the training with these actors to train with these Cirque du Soleil performers to do these formations because the choreography and the formations were really fun to watch and really great.
1: That goes into my small detail, actually fun because the final one that they do in the battle room is the one that you said looks like a turtle shell where it's kind of this tank that moves until they win. It's the same formation that they use at the end, everything around the most important one and This most important one is going to win the whole thing for us. So once they destroy this planet, it's because they have one big gun and they're going to let everything else go. The rest of their army is done. Everything just has to protect this one laser to shoot the planet. And it's the same thing in the battle room is that one person that is not frozen needs to get through to the end. And they're able to do that because everyone basically hugs the one character who's going to stay unfrozen. I just like that the battle room scene is foreshadowing into the end of the movie.
0: Yeah, it's really great. I think overall through talking about these little details and talking about this more with you, I left the movie feeling like that was fine. But the more I think about it, the more they actually put a lot of work into this movie and a lot of thought into this movie. And I think for having the rating it does, it's a little bit lower than what it should be. I think, yeah, shame on the author for what he said. Dude, the
1: author sucks. Yeah,
0: it's a piece of shit. And is it the best developed movie? Is it the best acted movie? No, it's not. But visually, it's fun to watch. It's Easy to follow along with for a movie that's based in this science fiction, external reality type of theme. And I think it's a lot better than what some of these critic ratings gave it. Whereas we have, on the other hand, Crazy Rich Asians, which we personally feel is a lot worse than what the critics gave it. So we have these two movies that are kind of meeting in the middle a little bit for us, I think, in terms of what our ratings would be. But that being said, let's go on and talk about which one is our winner. So on the count of three, we will reveal which one of these movies between Crazy Rich Asians and Ender's Game moves on to the next round. In three, two, one. Ender's, Ender's Game. game. So Ender's Game moves on to the next round, just overall a fun movie and much better than we expected it to be. I think it had a lot more complexities and a lot more fun visual pieces than we thought it originally would. And I thought for sure that Crazy Rich Asians would be one that moved on because I know a lot of people liked it. I know it's a rom-com. There's not a lot of good ones that come out. That's your bread
1: and butter too. You love rom-coms. I
0: love some good rom-coms. You've Got Mail is my favorite of all time, but is it my favorite genre of film? No, but usually I like them because you don't have to think a lot and it's really easy. But For us, this was just really not a good movie and I wouldn't really recommend it, but I guess it's somebody's cup of tea, a lot of people's cup of tea. It just wasn't ours and we just really didn't like it. So both of these movies were Okay, And I think one of them just surprised us way more than we thought it would. So that means that Ender's Game does move on to the next round. That does close out this matchup of our four verse thirteens, And now we are officially in the final leg of this race and we are moving on to our one verse 16 matchups. So seeing if we have a really, really big upset on our hands in the next two weeks with these one verse 16 seeds coming up. So that being said, our next podcast episode will air on Monday, October 19th, and that will be between Suspicion, which is our first seed, versus Along Came a Spider, which is our 16th seed. So very excited to see how these play out. I'm very excited to see if there's any upsets. And right now I'm going to throw it out just in a prediction that there will not be any upsets because these four movies I have been very excited to watch.
1: Me too. I love James Patterson. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. But no, these four movies that are our one seeds are truly some of the ones that I've been looking forward to the most since we started this. So we're very excited. We're very excited to see how it plays out. And who knows, we might have an upset. But I'm predicting right now, throwing it out there that we won't.
1: I believe they'll all be upsets. How about that?
0: Okay, fine. You go bet on it. We'll throw a 20 on that after this is over. So anyways, moving on, please go ahead and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at The Cinema Matchups. You can follow our posts, find out when we're posting. We post every Monday and Friday. So our next matchup will come out on October 19th, and then we'll keep posting every Monday and Friday until we are done with this Movies from Books Bracket Challenge. Go follow your bracket on Chalonge. If you haven't been, go see where you're ranking. Still not a whole ton of movement. Our first place leader is really holding strong, but it will be very, very fun to see how these pan out because there's a lot of people with some really high potential scores. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and Breaker. You can go check out all of our other matchups if you haven't listened to some of them before. And we appreciate all of you guys for listening and for hearing us out and listening to our movie reviews and recommending movies for us to watch. This is so fun for us and we love every minute of it. So for this week, for this matchup, for the cinema matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg and we will see you next time.